there's just one exit If you blink, you've gone too far We all get our news from the gal behind the bar It takes a village to raise this community And even if you don't go to church You say grace or give your thanks before you eat This is us, a small town in America And put simply, we like things how they used to be We got one stop sign, the bar closes at nine And we got an Exxon, you can't miss it It's up there on the right And this is home, we take care of our own If you can't relate, get back on the interstate and go Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of Climax the Podcast, Love Letter to a Small Town, a product of the Climax Scots Digital Network. I'm your host. My name is Kevin Harvey, a proud 1998 graduate of the Climax Scots Community Schools. And I hope everyone enjoyed the last couple of weeks with Gil Culver, the Culver family very integral in the communications of the Climax Scots community. And I was super happy to be able to share not just the story of the phone company, but a lot of that Culver family history and a lot of Gil's personal history, too. And if you've listened to the show before, you know that we like to take care of the business up front and thank those who help us keep the lights on here at Climax the Podcast. Thanks to our OG sponsor, Kristen Wachowski with State Farm. Kristen leads a team of great folks to help you with whatever your insurance needs may be, and they're based in Battle Creek. Kristen's office is located just off the intersection of 20th Street and Columbia. She's across the street from Ollie's and behind Chicago Title, and she's got great big signs there on 20th Street to help you find her front door. And beyond sponsorship, Kristen's someone that I have personally known for almost my entire life, and I trust her implicitly when it comes to honesty, integrity, and focusing on me and what I need, and I trust that she will do the exact same for you and your family and anyone you know who might have needs for insurance. So if you do have needs for insurance, or maybe you want to reevaluate your insurance or check out other options from what you have right now, Maybe those needs are in the realm of auto insurance, motorcycle insurance, homeowner's insurance, condo or renter's insurance, business insurance, life insurance. Heck, even if you've got an RV or a boat, Kristen can take care of all those things and more. For more information, you can give Kristen and her team a call at 269-968-5130, or you can visit her website, callkristen.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N, callkristen.com. And Climax the Podcast, especially episodes like the one you're listening to right now, would not be possible without the help, efforts, and archival access that we've had from our friends at Prairie Historical Society. PHS has been documenting the histories of Climax Scots in the surrounding area for almost 40 years, founded in 1984. There's a lot of fascinating stuff in that history room, whether you want to learn about life in the 1800s in Climax, or maybe you want to research your own family history and genealogy. There is so much that can be learned in the History Room, and you can visit that History Room. It's located inside Lawrence Memorial District Library in Climax. They are open on Tuesday mornings from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., and on Thursday evenings from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. You can give them a like on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Climax PHS. And PHS is a nonprofit organization, so all of this work has been done by volunteers over those 40 years, and what keeps PHS going is donations from the public. One way to help a lot is to become a supporting member. Annual memberships to PHS are only $15 per year, and that will get you their six bi-monthly newsletters that take deep dives into different historical topics from our town's histories. And you certainly have the option to donate more if you wish. If you'd like to become a member and help this organization out, you can send your address and payment information to Prairie Historical Society, 107 North Main Street, P.O. Box 82, Climax, Michigan, 49034. And if you would rather handle this electronically, you can contact me through the Climax Scots Digital Network website, ClimaxScotsDigitalNetwork.com, and I'll ensure that any and all information and payments get handed to PHS personally. And Climax the Podcast is a product of the Climax Scots Digital Network. That's a lot of things. It's news and blogs, it's this podcast, it's different video, it's digital conversion services, and even some more things that are coming down the pipeline. Our website is ClimaxScotsDigitalNetwork.com. We have an app you can download to that phone and subscribe. By the way, that's absolutely free. And that way you don't have to go to 10 different places to find out all the things CSDN is doing. That's everything we're doing in one app in one place. Climax Scott's Digital Network is a nonprofit organization. If you wish to support Climax Scott's Digital Network, there's a number of ways to do that on the website. Climax Scott's Digital Network is registered as a 501c3 organization, so your donations can be potentially tax-deductible. But for more information on that, 
please consult your financial professional. And on the website, we've actually expanded our digital conversion services. We've already had out for a while that we do audio tapes and CDs, DVDs, those mini tapes like Hi8, Mini DV, VHSC. We do VHS tapes. And now we now offer 8mm and Super 8mm conversion. And we've got some new tricks up our sleeves where we can even remaster, restore, and in some cases, colorize your original footage if it's black and white. And we do slides now too. I just figured out how that equipment works yesterday and it works great. And in the interest of transparency, yes, Climax Scott's Digital Network is a nonprofit organization. The expenses from these services, this helps offset our expenses. I think most people out there can probably look at this and go, yeah, they probably spent more money than they've made. Well, that's kind of the point. It's a nonprofit. This isn't to line some organization's pockets. It's not to line my pockets. It's simply to offset costs to help us ensure that we can keep doing what we're doing and hopefully for some time to come. And just like that, the business is done. Stay tuned after this week's main event where I'm going to share with you a little project that we're partnering with with Prairie Historical Society that has to do with some of that digital conversion. But for now, let's segue into the main event. We are delving into the archives of Prairie Historical Society for another installment of the Salute to Veterans series. Any installment of this series, I offer a little trigger warning. These are literal war stories. These are stories from members of our community from literal times of war in our world. That being the case, sometimes the language used can be a little bit harsh. And some of the stories are talking about very real situation these heroes of our country faced when they were at war, not just for our country, but for our own community. This is maybe a somewhat rare case of truly unfiltered history right from the mouths of those who lived it. Another thing about the Salute to Veterans series, these were recorded over 20 years ago, and the tapes at that time only had about 30 minutes on them, I think, so there's a time or two or three in here. There, there's at least two or three pieces that I had to piece together, and the tape ran out, so there's going to be a couple points where we just kind of <laughs> cut from one topic or even stop mid-sentence and suddenly we're someplace else. I wish there was more I could do in the magic of post-production, but the reality is we can't change what was recorded 20 years ago, but I'm still so glad that we have everything that we've got. So just know there may be some weird transitions a couple of times throughout this episode. Former Climax the Podcast guest Dwayne Drowlett Jr. hosts this interview with longtime Climax resident and longtime Climax Scott Superintendent of Schools, Bill Middleton. Without further ado, let's get into the main event of episode 28. The Salute to Veterans series with Bill Middleton. Name, rank, and serial number. All right. My name is Bill Middleton. My rank well, during the time I was in the service was uh, first lieutenant. I stayed in the reserves for... Uh, until 1962-68 and my final commission was a major when I retired from the reserve. And my serial number is 0660507. You didn't have to think twice about that, did you? No, sir. Not many guys do. Well, Bill is a retired superintendent of schools here in Climax Scotts, and uh, he's decided to make this his home, and he has, as he said, for a long time now. And uh, we're going to just uh, find out when he was inducted and what all went on with his uh, his experience in World War II. Bill, just start any place you want. Well, <clears throat> I'd like to do two basic things, if I could. First is to give a resume of what it was like for me and show you a few things and tell you about some of the interesting thing, both fun and not so much fun, that happened during the... I was in from December 8th, the day after Pearl Harbor, to December 10th, 1945, just over four years. Uh, To start with, I was in college, Michigan State University, fine institution. And no advertising, Bill. 
1941, and in the summer of 1941, June to be exact, a recruiter came around to the campus for the Army Air Corps, it wasn't the Air Force back then, came around to the campus recruiting. And I'd always been interested in flying ever since I was a little kid. I took my first airplane ride when I was nine years old. And so I told him I wanted to sign up. We were all thinking about the war at that time because uh, it's interesting. There wasn't a student that I know of that uh, didn't think we were going to be in the war. And this was in June of 41. And we just wanted to pick out where we wanted to go rather than be drafted. So he signed me up to take a physical exam in August for the Air Corps. I had to go to Flint, Michigan for that, and I took the exam. And I just missed uh, getting into pilot training because I had one eye that was 20-25, so I went in as a navigator. And I was notified in November, after taking the exam in August, I was notified in November to report to the uh, federal building in Detroit on December the 8th, not knowing what was going to happen on December 7th. I got to Detroit on December 8th, and Duane, I'm just guessing, but I'll bet you there was 10,000 young men outside that building trying to get in to sign up. It, as far as you could see, it was just a mass of people. And I'll never forget a big red-haired Irish sergeant came out on the steps and had a bullhorn. And he said something to the effect that he knew that all the people out there were anxious to get in. But he said, I need your cooperation. There's 32 men out there somewhere who have orders to be here. Now, if you'll raise your hand and the people around you will let them in, we would appreciate it. I don't know what would happen today, but we all raised our hands <laughs> and they all parted aisles for us so that we could walk right in and sign up. And with that, I climbed on a train for Ellington Field, Texas, where I took my uh, pre-navigation training. And I was there until February of uh, 42. Went from there to Kelly Field, Texas at San Antonio, and took my navigation training, graduating in uh, May 23rd of 1942. Here's a picture of a friend of mine, Otto, that's his last name, and myself. And there's my mother and my dad, and there's me. And my mother's pinning my wings on me, and there's my wife-to-be, my college sweetheart, and she was in Texas for the graduation. That is the same one you married, isn't it? That's the same one I married <laughs> in 1942. Here is a picture of me in my cadet uniform. And here is a picture shortly after I graduated and got married. We were married in November of 1942. I'll tell you a little about that in a minute. Uh, after graduation, I was sent to the 41st Bombardment Group, the 48th Bombardment Squadron in Fresno, California. And you talk about a surprise. Uh, I don't know, I got out there 
And I really didn't know how we were ever going to win a war with what we had. We, we had airplanes that you'd get them in the air and you'd have to turn around and bring them back down because they, one engine would quit or something would go wrong. And they were 1935, 1936, 1937 airplanes. And we had nothing to fly for several weeks. And uh, <coughs> about a month after I got there, we got a bunch of airplanes that were supposed to have been made for the British. They still had the British bullseye on the side instead of the American star. And they were called Lockheed Hudson's. And then our job became flying anti-submarine patrol off the west coast. Uh, every day, we'd, every morning we'd take off and we'd fly a given route out over the ocean uh, to make sure there were no Japanese submarines out there. And it was a wonderful time after we got some airplanes to fly uh, because we were getting a lot of training and when we were not flying a mission and we wanted to go somewhere all we had to do was go in and ask Colonel Harmon if we could have a plane to go to El Paso or go to uh, Las Vegas or wherever we wanted to go. And if we were off duty, he'd let us take a plane and go anywhere we wanted to go. And uh, you couldn't do that now. <laughs> but we, uh, we had a wonderful time during that. I was out on the West Coast one year, almost exactly one year, flying anti-submarine patrol. I got married in November of that year, and it was at a time that they had sent three of our, the crews of the 48th Bomb Squadron to Alameda, California, which is just a little ways from Oakland, to the Navy base, and we were under the command of the Navy for a while. And uh, we got to live in beautiful barracks. The Navy has barracks that far exceed anything we ever got. <coughs> Ray Smith knows that. <laughs> but we did. Well, I got married and there was no housing for my wife. But we didn't need any. The barracks that we lived in was just like a motel. It was a hallway with rooms on each side. We had one whole wing. The, our commanding officer uh, had the Navy <coughs> assign us a whole wing of the bachelor officer's quarters. And you could stay inside the room, and if you went from one room to the next, you'd go through the john and go to the next room, then to get to the next room, you just opened the door and you could go into that room if the room was unlocked. So we, we were able to have our wives right on the Navy base with us and the Navy never knew anything about it. And they stayed in their quarters. No women were allowed on the base till 10 o'clock in the morning. So they stayed in their rooms and just went room to room visiting until 10 o'clock in the morning and then they'd all come out. Well, you can imagine what some of the people wondered what was going on there. They were all our wives. But we, uh, we were stationed there, as I say, flying anti-submarine patrol with them. And in uh, June, uh, well, I'll back up a bit. We were still flying these Lockheed Hudsons, and they were nothing for combat. They had one machine gun on them, and they could carry two 300-pound bombs, and, or depth charges for submarine. One morning after we were back at Hammer Field in Fresno, I walked out on the base one morning, 
and here was a whole row, I think there were 14 of them, brand spanking new B-25 aircraft. That's this airplane right here. It's more well known as the Mitchell, and it's the same aircraft that Jimmy Doolittle bombed Tokyo with. It's a twin-engine bomber, uh, and it was a very easy airplane to fly and a very durable airplane. Well, there were, as I say, I'm not sure but it, whether it was 12 or 14, but there was a whole row of them sitting there, brand spanking new. They'd been flown straight from North American Aviation in Los Angeles up to our base and landed. Well, boy, if we weren't an excited bunch of guys. Now, this is a little hard to believe by some people probably today. Not one of the pilots had ever been inside of a B-25 in that whole squadron. We walked in, there was an order for the day to, we were having a general meeting, and we all went into the meeting. Colonel Harmon, our commanding officer, was there, and he, he was all smiles, and the other guys were all smiles. And he said, told us, he said, well, there's your airplanes. Now go out and pick one out and learn to fly it. <laughs> and that was his direction. And at that time, uh, Lieutenant Parashaw was my pilot and Sandy Gray, Lieutenant Gray was the co-pilot. I was the navigator. We went out, we and the uh, enlisted men all went out and looked the airplane all over. It picked out the one we wanted. We even had to tear some little tags off that were still on it from the factory. And it was a B-25C. They had the B-25A, the B, and the C, and this was the C, the third model. It had 150 caliber machine gun in the nose, two 50 caliber machine guns in a top turret, two 50 caliber machine guns that fired out each waist, and uh, a ball turret with a 50 caliber machine, twin 50 caliber machine guns. And <coughs> we all climbed into it. Parashaw looked around, found the starting switch and the necessary gadgets and turned them all on read the direction and so on, got the engine started, taxied it around for a little while, up and down the taxi strip. Two of the guys had already taken off in there, and he turned to Sandy and Gray, the co-pilot, and turned to me and he says, well guys, let's get this thing in the air. And the way we went. First time we'd ever flown it. And uh, we never had one man on that first day crack one up. After that we did. B-25 is a beautiful airplane. You can land it at 70, mile, 70 to 75 mile an hour. And you can land it just like this. You just float it. Yeah. And it lands beautiful if you do that. If it doesn't, if you don't do that, if you bring it around too straight, you're going to collapse the nose wheel on it. We had several guys did that. But it took, it would take an awful lot of punishment. I told you a while ago about how we could get airplanes almost any time we wanted them if we were off duty. We, this is while we were still in the States. I think that some of the things that those pilots did while we were still in the States did more to bring us uh, back home alive than anybody can ever appreciate. You know, they show these movie top guns and things like that, and the things that those guys do with those airplanes is absolutely unbelievable. Back then, 
we had an airplane the top speed our top speed was about 260 mile an hour we cruised at 165 and boy we really thought we were barreling but the the freedom that they had command was very very strict about some things but they gave us the freedom to learn how to test an airplane to its limit and still make it come back. I'll never forget, uh, well, we used to fly, anytime the fog was down at San Francisco, we'd go out over the ocean under Golden Gate Bridge. We'd go over the top of Oakland Bay Bridge and then we'd duck down and go under Golden Gate Bridge to stay under the fog. And we flew down Death Valley when our altimeter was registering zero because it couldn't go any lower. <laughs> and we were below sea level. They made a movie one time with Walter, the newsman. No, it wasn't Walter, the other guy. It talked so fast. Anyway, he made a movie in 3D uh, called The Seven Wonders of the World, and one of them was the Grand Canyon. And they flew a B-25 down the Grand Canyon, and he was t telling the audience on the in the studio first time that this had ever happened. Well, it wasn't the first time that it had ever happened. We went from Las Vegas, or Tonopah, really. We went from Tonopah to... Uh, uh, El Paso one time, and on the way there, we uh, crossed the Grand Canyon, and uh, Parashaw said, you know, we ought to see what this place looks like. So we dove down, and we flew the Grand Canyon for about 15 miles. We went by the South Rim, and we were waving at people standing on the South Rim looking down at it. Well, it isn't just a bunch of hotshot kids. We were kids. But it isn't a bunch of hotshot kids. You were learning an awful lot about an airplane, how much it would do and what it would take by doing those kind of things. And it, it all paid off when we went overseas. Now, what was a total crew? I mean, when you manned these uh, for, a, for combat. We had a pilot and a co-pilot, a navigator bombardier, which is what I was, a radio operator, gunner, a crew chief, and a turret gunner. And that was your maximum? That was the crew. That was the crew. Yeah. How many is that? Six? Oh, five. Well, I guess we'll have to figure that out sometime. We'll let somebody watching this figure that out. But anyway. I can tell you right now. <laughs> there's myself and my crew, and of course that's a bad picture. But it's this right here. Yeah, you hold her up, Bill. I'll, I think I can come right in on it. All right. Yeah, that won't show too good. But there's six guys there. Yep. Yep. That's our crew. Well, after a year of that, uh, we got, while we were stationed on the West Coast, <laughs> we were also considered uh, replacement or replenishment crews for overseas groups that uh, they had lost some crews or they had some crews come home and they would put in an order for re they needed so many replacement crews. Well, uh, we became four of the crews out of the 48th Bombardment Squadron went to Alaska and from there down the Aleutians as replacement crews in the 77th Bombardment Squadron. They, they would spend 12 to 14 months out on the islands and then come back home. So in June of uh, 43, uh, I went overseas. First we landed in Anchorage and then we were sent from Anchorage to Adak Island. Now, 
give you a little idea of where that is. So if okay. you stand in here doing it? I think we can get her. Just like it just like you've got it right now. Alright. Yeah, we're doing okay. Do you want to kind of show Alaska and where you were, Bill? We're all we're recording, so you can all go right. ahead. Well, of course, here's Alaska, and part of Alaska is the Alaskan Peninsula and the Aleutian Islands. Now, there is part of the Aleutian Islands, but on beyond here extends the rest of the Aleutian Islands. So that would bring that out about that far. It is 1,500 miles from here to the end of the Aleutian Islands. In Japan, during World War II, they did this as uh, they figured that they would be able to draw American forces away from Midway if they attacked the Aleutian Islands. And they attacked two islands. One of them is Kiska, which is right here, and the other one is Attu, which is the uh, westernmost island, which is right there. And they attacked and occupied those two islands from uh, uh, 19, I think from May of 43, to 1944, May. For over a year they occupied those islands before we were able to get them on. Uh, but thank God it didn't draw our boats away from Midway when the Japanese attacked that because some smart people in Washington had broken the, German, uh, the Japanese code and they knew what the Japanese were up to and they just knew that this was a diversion. Now, in, even though it was a diversion, the Japanese did a lot of damage to Dutch Harbor and many other places up there. But here is where I was stationed to start with. It's at an island called Adak. And it's right there. We're loaded and uh, we just got off the map. Okay. Well, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the area that we were in. Uh, as I said, it's 1,500 miles from the mainland of Alaska out to the end of the Aleutian Islands. They're all volcanic islands. In the spring of the year, they have the most beautiful flowers on them you ever saw. They're just delicate, like desert flowers, but they're gorgeous. But the weather is, well, it's about the worst weather for flying of any place in the whole world. You can take off with CABU conditions, go on a mission, 30 minutes later, have come back home and have maybe a thousand feet of visibility. It'll change that quick. Also, they have a wind up there that the natives call it Williwaw. And uh, winds will get as high as 75 to 90 miles an hour in five minutes. Mm. And you don't even know it's there. And uh, they've had airplanes that would be coming in to land, get hit with a willy-waw, and it'd just flip them over in the air right next to the runway before they ever got on the ground. So, but they have, uh, then they have just absolutely gorgeous days. And you can go out at night sometime, and the whole northern sky is just one solid, uh, oh, <laughs> the beautiful colors. Northern lights, just solid with northern lights of all colors, reds, greens, blue, and they just dance all over the sky. But uh, we lived in what they called Quonset huts, 
or not Quonset huts, I'm sorry, Pacific huts, which look like a Quonset hut, only they're made out of hardboard. We lived in those, and we lived in what they call stout houses. Those were our little building that's about 12 by 12, and they have four bunks in each one, and you uh, have your own stove and everything like that. Our objective up there was to uh, kick the Japanese off from two islands, namely Kiska and Attu. Well, I got down to Adak with, my, with our crew, and I don't remember the exact day that we arrived, but three days later, I'd been there just three days and barely got settled in, three days later, got a notice first thing in the morning that we were to report to operations. We got over there and they were going to take all the new crews out and break them in on bombing at, uh, Kiska. Well, I'd of course never been on a live bombing mission before. I knew nothing about what it was like. I just heard stories. I hadn't even talked to anyone that had been on a bombing mission before. Bunch of snot-nosed kids, and away we go. Well, we get about so far from Kiska, and all these little black puffs begin to appear in the air, and the pilot kept flying right straight toward them. And <coughs> the closer we got to them, the more they jolted us around. And that's when I found out what flak was. And, yeah, you do get scared, but you're so busy doing so many other things, you don't have to think, have time to think about being scared. And I'll never forget, you'll have to excuse me, Duane, uh, you know my ability to sing, but I gotta tell you this in a sing-song manner. I, I didn't know whether I liked what I'd gotten myself in for or not when we came off the target. And we no more than turned toward home, and the tail gunner, or the ball turret gunner, I mean, I started hearing his voice on the radio, and he went something like this. Oh, you fly from here to Kiska, and from where you sit, you see a prop come to a stop, an engine, it has quit. You can't swim and the ship won't float and the island's far behind. A tasty dish for the crabs and fish, but you'll never mind. <laughs> and I thought, my God, what a way to break the string. But you know you're with a pretty good bunch of guys when you can do that. Uh, I want to show you this. This was our squadron emblem. And hey, hold that up us, just a long, little long, okay, okay. Every one of us had one of those sewed on our leather jacket right here. It's got a 77 on it with a little Indian or Eskimo and a crossbow. Uh, after we succeeded in getting the Japanese off from Kiska, they deserted the island at Kiska without having to be invaded. Americans invaded the island, but they found the Japanese all gone. They had gone, we had 12 days of solid fog, and they left the island under the cover of fog. Well, then we concentrated our efforts on Attu, and there were a lot of American GIs lost in the taken of Attu. It, the uh, Japanese were dug right into the hills, and our bombing did very little to, uh, to them one way or the other because they were uh, dug into the hills. The only thing we had going for us was to try to help starve them out by keeping any shipping from getting in. We were trained back in the States in two types of bombing, high-level bombing 
And high-level bombing for us was maximum of 10,000 feet. But uh, any high-level bombing we did was mostly at 5,000. But the main thing that we did bombing-wise after Kiska was deck-level bombing. And that is where you, uh, you don't use torpedoes, you use regular bombs, the penetration type bombs, and you come in right level with the deck of the ship that you're coming toward, and you don't veer off, you keep right on going, that's the whole trick of it. You keep right on going till you get almost to the ship, you release your bomb as you pull up and throw your bomb right into the side of the ship and then go over the top of it. And that's what we were doing around that to, to uh, uh, keep shipping from coming in to help the Japanese, uh, you know, supplies that they needed. And finally, the Navy uh, landed a huge American landing force there that took the island and uh, we were able to build runways on the island so that we were close enough then. We were 700 and little over 700 miles from the northernmost Japanese home islands of Paramashiro and Shimashu. They're two islands that set right side by side, the two northernmost islands. They're just below the Russian Kamchatka Peninsula. And they were two heavily fortified islands. Japan was getting a lot of its supplies there. They also had uh, beautiful harbors for uh, the Japanese well, the Japanese Fifth Fleet used uh, islands to, uh, for repairs and everything like that. So when we uh, got to Attu, our mission then was Paramashiro and Shimashu. It would take anywhere from, depending on how much time you were, over the islands, it would take approximately 10 to 10 and a half hours to fly over and back. The first mission that I was on there was on September 11th, 1944. Or September 11th, the 43, I mean. <coughs> September 11th, 1943. And Twelve airplanes took off to bomb the island. See, we didn't have a big air force in Alaska like they did in Germany or in some places. In fact, the whole Pacific was made up of a lot of little air force groups scattered all over on the islands. South Pacific as well as up in Alaska. But we t twelve airplanes took off and they knew that there were a bunch of big tankers setting in the harbor between Shimashu and Paramashiro. Those two islands have real steep banks and they had anti-aircraft guns practically the whole length of them that could shoot across like this. And I'd never been there before. We flew down that chute to get to these tankers. We had a great big tanker, look a lot like the tankers you see on the Great Lakes, right straight in front of us, and two others to the right. And we put two 500-pound bombs right into the side of that tanker. And if they detonated before they should have, in my opinion, <laughs> because we just got the tail end of the airplane over the top of the doggone boat when the whole dang boat blew up right behind us. And uh, we came around the bend in this chute and here's uh, one battleship, two cruisers and five destroyers right there in front of us. Well, we didn't go any further that way. 
we made a haul to the left and went out over the island instead of that. But that's when we started catching Japanese Zeros. Of the 12 airplanes that went on the trip, uh, one of them turned back before he got there, Major Huddleston, with engine trouble. And of the 11 left, there were only four crews came back. Uh, some of them came out alive and were, were captured or landed in Russia. But there were only four crews of us that came back out of the 11 crews that went in. But uh, we sunk five Japanese ships that day. And uh, after that trip, we spent most of our time uh, sinking ships outside of Paramashiro in the ocean. There was one period there where we sunk, the crew that I flew with, we sunk two Japanese ships in uh, 11 days, uh, 11 days apart. We went out one day we sunk a big ship that day and went out 11 days later and sunk another ship. And they, uh, oh, there was a thing here that tells about it somewhere. Yeah, I guess you found it. Yeah. There was a letter that appeared in my hometown paper. It says, Colonel Boy given the Air Medal. Uh, Middleton and his crew sink two Japanese vessels, and uh, there, there's an article in the paper. The attacks were made at deck level on June 22nd and June 29th, more than 800 miles from the bomber's Aleutian base. He's a little bit wrong about that. It's more like 700, but it's still a good distance. Uh, there is, there's what that air metal looks like. Uh, later can you, on. Can you hold it up a little better, Bill? You there we go. Okay. Thank you. That's just right. And I have an oak leaf cluster that goes with it. Uh, I don't know whether you know what the Oak Lake Cluster is or not, but that takes the place of a second one of those. And they give you a little Oak Lake thing to fasten on to it. But that's what that looks like. Here is what the uniform. This is called an Eisenhower jacket. And the reason it's called an Eisenhower jacket is because we used to wear what they call the blouse. And the blouse went, whoop, blouse went down to here. And Eisenhower got tired of that thing. And because he had four stars sitting on his shoulder, he could have his own blouse. <laughs> so he had a blouse made that's like that. And that's where it got its name, uh, Eisenhower Jacket. And we, since he was able to wear it, they allowed all the rest of us to have it. And it was much more comfortable than the uh, regular blouse that we wore. Uh, I was in the islands until June of, uh, or until June, I say, until September, August. Got home in September, but I was there until August, in 14 months from the time I got there till I came home. And uh, I'd already received my orders that I was, could be on the next flight back to the state. 
and I don't mind telling you this, uh, I worried for about three days that I would going to be on another mission before I got back because as long as you were still there and your crew was flying, even though you had orders to go that you could come home, if you hadn't been able to get a plane in to take you home and they went on a mission, you went. And I, I wasn't very interested in going on any more missions, I can tell you. You had enough flack. Well, I had a pilot that uh, he was an eager beaver. And uh, anything, anything come up that uh, he thought was going to be exciting, he'd volunteer for it, even though his crew wasn't too happy about it. His name was Claude Wilson. And, uh, but anyway, uh, somebody knew that, uh, Sandy Gray knew that I had my orders to go, and he come rushing into the hut one morning, bright and early. I'd just gotten back from eating breakfast, and he says, Middleton, I think your plane's here. Well, I had everything all packed, ready to go. Boy, I was on my way out. Well, on the islands, that's tundra that has built up over thousands of years on top of the volcanic rock. They had to cut trenches in it to get it to drain. The trenches are about that wide and they're about that deep. And the sides of them are just like grease. So you, you never wanted to step too close to the edge because you could go in and you wanted to make sure if you jumped, you jumped far enough to get over the other edge far enough so that you didn't go in. Well, I had an A3 bag in one hand and a B4 bag in the other, and I was headed for an airplane. <laughs> and I went running toward that airplane, and I had to jump one of those ditches. And man, I missed it. <laughs> and the only thing that kept me from going all the way down was the B4 bag straddled the ditch up here. And Sandy Gray, the guy that had told me uh, about the plane being in, he came along. And he stood there and he just laughed his head off. He says, I told you you can go home. You're not supposed to be down there. <laughs> I said, well, for God's sakes, get me out of here. <laughs> and so he did. He pulled me out and I climbed on the airplane and uh, headed for Anchorage and from there back to the United States. Called my wife the minute I hit Seattle. She wanted to know where I was, and I told her. And I said, uh, I'll be home just as quick as I can get there. And she says, how soon will that be? And I said, I don't know, because I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm just taking the first train that's headed for Chicago, which I did. And I don't know whether you, you fellas knew this or not, but during the war, a soldier on orders, yeah. He just walked up and he got a ticket. That's all there was to it. And uh, I just walked up and told him where I wanted to go. I had to go to Fort Sheridan to get processed before I came to Michigan. Anyway, I had uh, 16 days en route to get to Miami Beach, Florida. And Susie went with me down there got down to Florida and I was assigned to uh, a squadron down there that was flying what they called A-26s. It was an attack bomber and mighty fine airplane. And from there I went to California and uh, you had a chance to earn another rating after you came back from overseas. So I went to California and went into pilot training. I didn't make the grade, but I went from there to uh, oh, uh, teaching navigation at Ellington Field. And I was teaching navigation at Ellington Field when 
the war was over. I had 71 days terminal leave coming, so from the time of my actual enlistment to the time of my actual discharge was four years and five days, and I was out. The interesting thing to me, when I look back on it all now, uh, is, well, there's several things. One of them is what this nation can do when it has to, when it absolutely has to do it, what it can do. Uh, when, when it's hit right between the eyes with the reality of it, no joking, no uh, ifs, ands, or buts about it, this is what you're in for. Now get out there and do the job. And to think what we had, to defeat what we did, it's just amazing that we did it and weren't able to. And yet, I, I see so many of those people, like Ray, like Maynard Piper, like lots of people. We had only one thing, the day they said you can get out of here, <laughs> you had only one thing in mind. Get home and get on with your life. And that's what all of us did. I went back to school and uh, I was in my junior year when I went into the service. So I went back to school and on the GI Bill and uh, got my degree and then I went on and got my master's degree on the same GI Bill, which was a wonderful thing for all of us. And I think that about sums it up. Well, Bill, I got one question about the same one I had for Jinx. Uh, have you kept track of your crew? Yep. Until a few years ago, I, I've been trying to get a hold of uh, uh, Parashaw, who was my pilot, and uh, I can't find him or his wife. I tried my darndest, mm. and I can't. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time and your story. Uh, we'll add this to the rest of them. Thank you okay. much. Well, I hope you enjoyed a lot of history packed into this latest installment of the Salute to Veterans series. Before the main event, I'd mention I wanted to talk about a little project, a little collaboration between PHS and CSDN. And a lot of it's already been in motion. Some of it, you've seen the tip of the iceberg. Some of it's been going on behind the scenes, and there's a lot more in the pipeline. And we're looking for more. I think at this time, every video that we have at PHS has at least gone through its original conversion from those older formats to something more modern. And right now, we've just started the process of remastering, restoring, and in some cases, even colorization of like old 8mm film. It's been really cool to see. As much as PHS has recorded, it's inconceivable that over the 40 years, people could have been everywhere at once all the time and with camcorders or whatever recording device. So this is where we're calling out to the general public. If anyone out there has anything in your personal collection or your family's personal collection of true community events, we would love to be able to enter that into the archives at PHS. Now this is far from a complete list of potentials, but if your personal collections have things like sporting events, church events, other group and organization events, maybe business openings, things like Memorial Day or other town events and celebrations, we ask that you consider a donation of that to the archives to be logged into the history books at Prairie Historical Society. PHS and CSDN will take care of the work, and these will be converted at no cost to the donor. The donors will also receive back all of their originals and get free digital copies of the converted, remastered, restored audio and video. Now, if you happen to have this video, audio, slides, whatever it may be, you can bring it up to PHS in their business hours. Again, that's Tuesday mornings from 10 a.m. to noon, Thursday evenings from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. You can, within reason, set up ad hoc hours. You just need to call Pat or Sharon Harvey at 269-746-4796. You can contact me through All Things CSDN. It'll be pretty easy for us to set up a time and a place to coordinate all of this. 
Now, if you have any questions on the technical side of things, please direct those to CSDN. Best ways you can do that would be either call or text 779-456-6713 or send an email to admin at climaxscottsdigitalnetwork.com. And it's that time of the week where we need to put a bow on this little episode of Climax the Podcast. It was history-packed and hopefully fun and educational. Thanks again to our sponsors and partners, Kristen Wachowski at State Farm and the Prairie Historical Society. And most of all, thank you to the listeners. You're why we do this every week. Thank you for listening to Climax the Podcast, Love Letter to a Small Town. I'll talk to you guys in about a week. If you blink, you've gone too far.